0: Well, on Rebuilders this week, we are revisiting our conversation on Ukraine and Russia, exploring a little bit about what has happened over the last seven days, but what else are we going to be talking about, Mark?
1: We're going to be continuing to ask the question of what is this telling us at a bigger level? Uh, Are we seeing the rise, actually, in a plot twist of a post-secular world? We're going to be talking about the rise of what is called civilizational states and how history is looking very different or the future is looking very different. History hasn't come to an end, it's continuing. And particularly looking at that from a biblical perspective, what does this tell us about what it is to be the church
0: at this moment? So, if that sounds interesting, keep listening. If you want a list of the resources that are referred to in this episode, you can join our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co and subscribing to the mailing list. Well, hi. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy. I'm here with Mark. How are you going there? I'm good. Thank you. There is a... um, a person absent yes. in like physical form, physical form. today. Daniel um, is not with us in the building, but he is with us via the digital space.
1: It's very creepy because the whole sound desk is no one's sitting there, but we're, it's, it's remotely being operated, which is just really weird. So stuff's happening, but he's not there. So anyway, we're creeped out, but you don't need to be at home because everything's working.
0: Yeah, everything's fine.
1: And it was Daniel's birthday. Don't this worry. Week.
0: Oh, yeah, it was Daniel's birthday, birthday this Daniel week. Happy birthday, Daniel! For the seventh of March. For the seventh of March. Uh, happy birthday, Mark! For the fifth of March.
1: Thank you. Happy birthday, Liddy! For the seventh of March as well. Yeah, uh, Daniel it's a and rebuilders. I
0: have matching birthdays, and yeah, yeah, somebody got in early. Yeah, Mark.
1: Yeah, i oh, got to be ahead of the pack.
0: Yeah. No. So, yeah, look, birthday week, exciting times. We had lots of donuts yesterday, which. Well, actually, us two did. Daniel wasn't here. No, no. He was sick. We've saved Daniel a donut though. Uh, You never know. It might disappear this afternoon. Mm. Uh, So, yes, as with birthdays, you know, it's a good time to reminisce on the year that you were born. And uh, as I was travelling in the car on my birthday, I was listening to the hits of 1986 and this particular song came up, which uh, I didn't really think of at the time, but as we were preparing – before the show, it came into my head, um, which is Genesis. So from, Yes, Genesis, Genesis, the band Genesis, right. uh, and the song is called Land of Confusion, and so I was like, this is the world we live in, or however it goes, and these are the hands we're given. That's the line that I had in my head, but it turns out it's actually quite a relevant song.
1: Yes, yes. You put on the, you put on the music video, and I was like, oh, wow, we're back here. It's images from Spitting Image. So, so video clip is using the puppets from the British political satire, satire show. But spitting image. Which, which
0: I'd is, never seen before, so I had no idea what that was. It was in its
1: heyday at this time of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But all the images, Cold War, Russians, Ronald Reagan trying to save the day, it felt very relevant. But then you read some of the lyrics.
0: Yeah. So uh, this one section that says, Oh, Superman, where are you now when everything has gone wrong somehow? The men of steel, the men of power are losing control by the hour. And it just seems like scarily fitting. Yeah. Yeah. as we uh, come to another episode of talking about what's happening uh, in Ukraine, uh, what's happening with Putin and Russia, and how that trickles down and affects uh, our us at a, a local level, at a church level, um, at a leadership level, in whatever context you find yourself in. So we might take the opportunity now um, mm. to do a bit of a catch up on what's what's been happening. Uh, in Ukraine since we recorded last week, so it's mm. been seven days now. yeah, let's mm. let's head there.
1: Well I think the big you know so the big few just to play a big few things. you know obviously the, the conflict is ongoing. Um, but I think the first thing is you know some of the things we were worried about happening last time are, are happening in terms of the shelling of cities, you know Kharkiv. Um, it's interesting I watched a video oh, last week or something because I, I you know not really heard of Kharkiv City before this conflict. And I, on YouTube, there's the, so many videos now of any city in the world of someone mm-hmm. walking around with like a GoPro and, you know, 4D, 4K or whatever, high-def videos, you know. And it was just this video I put on of this guy just walking around Kharkiv and, you know, quite a pretty city and, you know, a lot of really old architecture and, and then saw it yesterday. Um, you know, uh, I think it was a, a, uh, Al Jazeera team got into Kharkiv and it, and it looks, you know, it looks like Grozny in the Chechen War, it looks like something in World War II, just the city centre that I'd seen the video of that was only shot like in 2020, yeah. just, just destroyed. So I think that that you know, horrible reality of civilians being bombed, we're seeing that and that very different sort of war, which is almost like, you know, it's not even urban warfare, fighting house to house, rather it's just shelling cities before mm. you even go in, you know. So, so I think some of our worst fears around that are being realised. I think we're also seeing some of the other issues that we've talked about in this podcast of supply chains and we're seeing that intensify um, particularly around grains and wheat in Mm -hmm. the world and projecting that, you know, you could see huge problems with food supply particularly in Africa, North Africa as Russia and Ukraine are big sort of uh, food bowls for a lot of the world and even Russia uh, produces a lot of fertiliser for the world which now in retaliation to some of the sort of sanctions they're not producing even just one little weird um, but consequential um, supply chain issue mm. is that I think one in se- – I heard one in seven uh, maritimers who are involved in cargo around the world are Russian or Ukrainian. And yeah. a lot of the most trained sort of guys who, you know, uh, operate at a high level in, in cargo mm. is actually Ukrainian. So a lot of them now are not able to say, you know, the add-on supply chain effects and even the no-fly zones with air cargo now and Black Sea being sort of closed and, you know, this sort of stuff. It's some of the supply chain issues that we saw with um, COVID are going to continue. And we talked about that when we, we talked about supply chain issues and networks, how crises can cascade into other crises. And so we're seeing that um, currently of um you know the the supply chain crisis caused by COVID, now cascading into a supply chain issue caused by um, the war in Ukraine and the resulting sanctions and, mm. and boycotts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you know I I think that that's that's continues to be consequential. And then one thing I've been really wondering about is you know again, to history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. To quote Mark Twain. Um, You've seen, I think, now 40,000 foreign fighters are coming in yeah. to fight for Ukraine, which is massive. I mean, I think the Australian land forces are like 29,000. So, that's a big, you know, sort of like force. And um, Is there it,
0: much being reported about where they're all sort of collecting everywhere. from? It's just everywhere.
1: Yeah, like, you know, I saw pictures yesterday of like people from Brazil, Portugal, yeah, you know, wow. they're, like apparently they're saying there's an entire battalion of Canadians. There's that many people coming. Mm. Um, people coming from India. There's like lots coming from places like Japan. So it's very, very international, and I think that's responsive to, um, uh, you know, people seeing this. It's like it's like a, a local thing, but it's also connected to a global thing. So, you know, it made me think a lot about the Spanish Civil War, which okay. happened in the 30s before World War II, mm-hmm. um, where you had this battle between sort of General Franco, who was sort of. Um, Uh, this sort of scene as a quasi sort of fascist leader and you had people going in fighting for him and then people fighting for the communists and the socialists on the the sort of left Um, and you had these foreign fighters coming in and it was a little bit of a rehearsal in the midst of Europe before and part of me wonders, you know, is that like this? George Orwell um, wrote a book about that and his experiences as a foreign fighter um, and interestingly, 1984, his mm. book, um, so he wrote, the book he wrote about the Spanish Civil War was Homage to Catalonia and uh, a lot of his thoughts about 1984 was actually the disillusionment he felt fighting for this cause of the left yes. and then seeing on the battlefield how the left was sort of tearing itself apart and, and so, you know, that partially you know, inspired um, uh, uh, 1984. And, and there's a really sort of moving bit where he talks about, he sees this fascist soldier, um, and the fascist soldier's like relieving himself. He's going to the toilet and he shoots at him and almost the sort of complete tragedy of that, comic tragedy of that moment. And the guy I think sort of yeah. pulled his pants off and ran. It just made him like, oh, what am I doing here? What is this all about yeah. really, you yeah. know? And, yeah, so you sort of wonder and that 1930s conflict in Spain, some of what, you know, the intensification of what happened with communism and and, and Nazism and fascism was sort of born and, and people took that sort of radicalism back to their country. So, yeah, I'll be thinking about that a bit as we sort of continue to watch this conflict and it continues to have um, uh, significant um, inputs. Just one final one too I saw we talked about last week of how will the sort of difference now of this sort of networked activism in the world mm. um, where people see something and they want to change it quickly, how does that sort of, you know, could that escalate this conflict? And yeah. I saw on uh on social media just sort of before we came on in in the Guggenheim Museum, the Art Museum in New York. uh, uh, New York artists, it's sort of like a really interesting, I think Frank Lloyd Wright building and um, there's like this sort of spiral uh, um, staircase and they all sort of stood on this spiral staircase and threw down all these paper planes, which was their demands for a no-fly zone. Yeah. (laughs) And um, you know, because they want to see the conflict in Ukraine stop. But then again, so, it was sort of this network, social media moment in order to get sort of movement on an issue and force mm, politics. Mm. But then, you know, as we said last week, if we go into a no-fly, no-fly zone, that could see an escalation. You know, we're yes. racing towards a nuclear conflict. Yes. So, you know, all these things are still in play and, and there's so much up in the air at this moment.
0: Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I did want to ask about uh, last week, you mentioned you'd done some reading and some of the experts had said that this uh, could be a war that goes on for- Mm. you know, a decade or more. Mm. Have you read anything more about that or is there yeah. anything? Um- that,
1: that, so that was some of the estimates that came out of some of the, the military, bl- br- uh, the US military briefing, the press. Yep. Um, some of the stuff I'm reading is, you know, like Ukraine um, seems to be putting up quite a good fight, you know, mm-hmm. but then there's people saying, you know, and, and Russia is sort of underperforming and so on. But then there's an element where, you know, it's, it's really hard to look at this conflict because I think, again, just incredible brilliant uh social media strategy from Ukraine. You know, I saw this picture before of a young woman soldier holding this kitten, you know, <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, this sort of well shot, you know, in fatigue's yes. holding this kitten and you know, it's this very powerful image. And but, you know, in some ways all this is propaganda, you know, and so there's an element where it could seem because we're seeing this social engagement strategy of Ukraine that things are going better. And I think, you know, Kiev's you know, held out longer than we thought. But, you know, wars take a long time and, um, yeah, you know, like I think that some of the possibilities, you know, still multiple possibilities before us, you know, Russia could collapse but then also it could sort of be just a frozen conflict or an ongoing insurgency in the midst of Europe or, um, uh, you know, or Russia could just grind it out and take months and effectively take, you know, a lot of the country. So, yeah, I think there's a number of analyses flying around and really what's interesting I noticed is often you read – Histories about wars and most of mm. the histories are written afterwards, and maybe you have a few correspondents who might like, you know, think about, um, you know, Vietnam War. You had a few correspondents over there for, you know, sort of key newspapers, and, and yes. Um, but what you've almost got now, you've almost got this live reading of it, and live, yeah. it's like history is being written on social media as we speak. And so, I think that makes it really hard to sort of judge through the fog of war what's actually really happening.
0: Yeah, and I guess really we're only seeing. One side of it, right? Yes, yes. Um, our, our ability to know what it's like on the ground uh, mm. for Russian civilians at the moment is severely limited, right? Yes, yes. yeah. So, yeah, interesting, interesting times. Um, okay, happy with with where where what you've covered for yes. Ukraine, where we're at yes, now. Yes. All right, let's move on and. Uh, Take a more broad look at what the, I guess, the theological and political viewpoints are. What do mm. these continue to tell us about mm. this time that we're living in, mm. um, and and what's occurring specifically in Ukraine, but also the yeah. flow on of that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, last week's episode um, is probably our most listened to episode, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 by some way so far, and I think, you know, we've got a lot of response from it, and. I think there's two reasons for that. There's obviously huge interest in Ukraine and, and mm. you know, people have tremendous compassion for what's going on and concern of where this could go. Mm. But I think secondly, the element is people fed back as well in various messages and emails and so on was, you know, the understanding that this is sort of an epochal shifting moment. Mm. And, um, you know, I really feel like, you know, capturing some of those bigger things that are happening and in some sense like, you know, we just talked about people writing history as they, you know, look at this conflict. In some ways we're doing the same thing, narrating this and trying to understand it. But I think probably what's differently is we're trying to do this from a biblical, you know, yes. sort of theological um, or really, you know, the themes of this podcast, like, a, you know, talk about begins missiology of reading the culture. And, mm. um, you know, I think we need to understand, you know, the biggest shift that's happening in the world with this um, in order to, you know, and what we're going to talk about today is really the shift from what we thought was an inevitable post-Christian future, a secular future, into almost a post-secular future. Okay. Um, And I feel like it's really important to speak into this because, number one, there's an evangelistic opening for the people of God at this moment Mm. because a lot of the idols and illusions that people had um, placed their hope in are being pulled down. So there's an evangelistic opening. and uh, But secondly, there's also this importance of what we're going to talk about today is that at moments of crises like this, that also the church is not seduced into, uh, met, you know, misled into, um, uh, you know, I think some of the forces and, and and spirit of the day which can lead us down bad paths.
0: Okay. Well, you mentioned there the term uh, post Secular, the yes. post-secular reality. We've obviously talked a lot about po- post-Christian mm. um, culture, but I wonder—we've uh, probably mentioned it a few times about post-secularism. Um, but it'd be yeah, it'd be valuable to explore that a bit more.
1: Yeah, Well we haven't mentioned it heaps, and I, I think that it's something that's really important to get, I think, across our. Um, you know, understanding, because there was just such a strong belief that's animated so much of the reaction, particularly in the Western church, that, ah, secularism is inevitable. And, you know, I think what we're seeing playing out is a potential post-secular reality. Is that going to happen everywhere? No. Is there still going to be secularism in lots of places? Yes. But you're seeing this real competition and and the Mm. inevitability. Now, mentioned lots of time, mentioned him last week, um, uh, you know Francis Fukuyama's theory that the world was moving to this, and the highest. Well, it's interesting. His his argument is often articulated that the world was moving to the end of history. That yes. we're going to just head into this wonderful liberal democratic state. That the whole world was sort of going to become like that. You know, and and that was the hu- the height of where we could get. You know, poor old Francis um, said quite a pasting on on <laughs> you know a lot of people just having goes at him like you know ukraine is 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 evidence that um um you know this theory is 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 not working um he got a bit emotional on twitter i saw he right. someone defended him and he was like oh thank you someone finally gets my point now he's he's arguing his point is not that That's the necessary state we're all going to get to. But he's more arguing that, yes, we might revert back from that point of a secular sort of post-Christian content-free future. Yeah. um, But that um, he's saying, well, you know, we might revert from that, but we can never get higher than that. Got it, yeah. Um, Now, he had a a sort of rival Mm -hmm. who was a friend. So, they had an intellectual rivalry but managed to be quite good friends. Um, um, Samuel Huntington. And around the time that um, Fukuyama sort of, you know, posited this view of the future, Mm -hmm. he had this other view. And um, the two views have sort of been in competition in how people have thought about the future of the world and sort of international relations and geopolitics and so on. And he wrote a sort of very famous book um, called The Clash of Civilizations. So, Fukuyama's vision of the world is that the highest state we'll get to is liberal democracy. It's sort of inevitable. And people eventually – it will win out because it's just the force of its sort of argument and they're just the inevitability of it. Huntington um, – that's a very quick, simple, um, you know, sort of explanation of it. Yeah. Huntington actually saw – no, history is moving towards what he called a clash of civilizations. Okay. That actually – Fukuyama's argument is essentially that the modern world, as the world becomes modern, that will naturally become more liberal, democratic, and sort of less religious and, Mm -hmm. you know, more individualistic in a sense. Samuel Hartsington actually posited something very different. Now, he has a really interesting argument uh, diagram, which, you know, obviously you're listening to a podcast, I can't show you. And I know uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, which more and more people are watching on YouTube, which yeah, is yeah, interesting, they are. Um, obviously just have to see our, our wonderful selves in, in person. <laughs> um, but he 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 has this little chart um, and basically he talks about, his Huntington's argument is that actually modernization will actually lead to what he called a cultural resurgence. So classically how it went was that You know, basically, modernization will mean that the society sort of, you know, increases in its sort of economic, military, and political power. Yep. And so, in a sense, we become more modern. We can conquer nature. Yes. um, You know, we advance in science. But then for the individual, what this would mean is that they increasingly would- be alienated and they would be disconnected from the things which traditionally gave them meaning of, of place, of religion, of culture, of identity, of, of, you know, those tribal bonds, you know. Yes. Um, and that this would actually then lead into an identity crisis.
0: And we've certainly, like pre-pandemic and pre-discussing this war, we've certainly seen that, right? Yes. There's there's plenty of evidence to show yes. that that's, that's totally. Happening. Yeah.
1: So, that's where Fukuyama would agree with it in a sense to that point. Yep. And Fukuyama would sort of say, yep, people are going to get to that point. They might sort of go backwards because they feel alienated, but that's the highest we can get to and that's sort of the end of the game.
0: And what's backward? Backward, Backwards, sort of, you know,
1: try and unravel things. He talked about, you know, at the end of history, people might become bored, you know, and sort of return to the old sort of, you know, sort of primal urges of battle or whatever. Okay, Yep. Uh, Huntington sort of articulated it slightly different. He actually said that what would happen is that they would go through that stage and then would start to look and negotiate a new kind of modern living, a new kind of modern being, a new kind of modern way of interacting with the world, which would then try and bring back identities of the past and would actually lead to this sort of cultural and religious resurgence. Okay. Um so actually his argument is that modernization will inevitably not lead to a sort of secular future yes. or a a future where people aren't, you know, animated by culture and civilization and these things. Yeah. That actually it would um uh you know lead to a rediscovery of those previous things. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, kind of. Um so a rediscovery of like can you give some examples like what's the
1: Yeah. So Let's give a few examples. So, number one, um, Turkey. Yep. Turkey as a modern nation was formerly an empire. It was the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire. And yep. the Ottoman Empire um, was ruled um, by an Islamic leader mm-hmm. um, and it saw itself as the continuation of the great Islamic civilization of the caliphates. And they had these things called millets, so basically people were organised into these sort of multicultural subcategories is probably the best term. Okay. So here were the Christians, the Christians operated here, they could worship how they wanted, they had particular leaders above them who would then relate to the government and over here maybe be different, um, you know, branches of Islam or over here might be different ethnic groups, mm-hmm. you know, like the Armenians or whatever, You know, they might be a subcategory within the Christians, there might be Jews or, or whatever. And it was sort of this empire which allowed some diversity yes. um, as long as they all sort of like said that they're part of this bigger empire. Right. Now, as, as sort of the 20th century begins, um, Kemal Ataturk comes in, this, this leader of Turkey, and he sort of says, no, we're actually going to go in this very different way. We're going to create this sort of secular identity more based around being Turkish. Okay. And everyone could sort of like get rid of their old identities and become Turkish and sort of get rid of the influence of the religious schools, get rid of the influence of the churches or yep. the mosques, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, because now it's actually, we're going to have an identity, but it's a much less of an identity. Yes. Um, so it's less thick, if, if you think about that, in terms of religious, cultural. Um, it, it's more about um, this sort of sense of the nation, which everyone can belong to. So it's sort of yes. a unifying moment. Okay. Now, now what happens is, Interestingly, that kicks off. That inspired people like Hitler and different things. There was a genocide of the Armenians and Assyrian Christians because they didn't fit into that. And then what you saw is slowly this drift happened over decades, where in the 80s, there starts to be a bit of rediscovery of Sunni Islam and its influence. The religious schools, yes. which have been pushed underground as Islam starts to return, start to have this sense of um, rediscovering a sense of identity. Mm. And then you end up where we are today, where the president of Turkey is... Um, Recep Erdogan, who is a religious leader, who now talks in the idea of a civilizational state, that actually Turkey is not this secular state that um, uh, Kemal Ataturk created, that actually it is really an Islamic state. It's a state which has its definite sort of civilizational entity. And that's even connected to Turkic people in other countries, which are not part of the nation of Turkey today. So, that's that's a classic example of that process.
0: Okay, so a civilizational state, as you've put it, isn't necessarily a country with the same kind of borders as we understand countries, but yes. it's more of a, an ideological, cultural, potentially religious collective of people identified yes. by those yes. parameters. Yes. Yeah?
1: So another, another example, would, and, and which struggles to hold together diversity in the same way.
0: In the same way as a our standard understanding yes. of a nation state. So another example
1: there? would be when India becomes independent yes. um, just after the war and uh, it becomes an independent state, the British march out and um, uh, Nehru, who's the leader, um, Gandhi is obviously assassinated mm-hmm. and um, the Congress Party create India as a secular state. India obviously had many different... Um, religious and cultural groups, not yeah. just religious groups, caste groups, cultural yes, groups, yeah. ethnic groups, states, all of this. and um, But they said, we're going to be united by being Indian – and we sort of want this culture where, yes, you can still practice your religion. So it's not secularism is, is trying to get rid of religion; rather, it's trying to create this way of those different religions relating to each other. Mm-hmm. And so they create this this state. They also are non-aligned. They won't be part of the cold. They don't want to be part of the Cold War. They don't want to be linked to the West or to communism. It's creating this sense of Indian identity and this secular state where. The Muslim can work next to the Hindu, next to the Christian and sort of everyone can go and worship what they want to worship but it doesn't come in and sort of like um, then affect the public square. So it's it's a okay. way of finding a compromise between these different identities. Where we are now in India is slowly you've had this uh, growing sense of Hindu nationalism or a Hindu civilizational state. Okay. So Narendra Modi, the current leader of India, actually comes from a – Uh, sort of stream which has grown up in Hinduism of sort of Hindu sort of right wing thought where he comes from a sort of youth organisation or an organisation called the RSS which actually was modelled on some early fascist sort of groups like the Mm Brown shirts in in Germany and sort of Mussolini's uh, sort of early movements. And so India now is drifting away from that secularist idea to actually being Indian is Hindu. And even talking about how does it sort of gather, like there's artic- uh, uh, essays being written now, of how does it sort of gather these bigger sort of, you know, even parts of the the bigger Hindu uh, civilization that could be in a place like Bali or, or Nepal or these sort of places. Yes. So this growing sense of uh, uh, it's less about a multicultural group in a nation defined by just say their citizenship who agree to keep some of those things out of the public square, it's now about replacing at the centre of identity things like ethnicity or religion or mm-hmm. culture back in the centre of that place and particularly having one dominant group which which holds
0: that. So how are you seeing this play out um, in what's happening in Russia and yes. Ukraine?
1: Well, again, too, I think we've seen something very similar. Yes. Um, you know, you think about, you know, we talked about this last week of, of Russia um, uh in the 90s, embracing liberal democracy mm. and sort of, you know, trying to become this sort of pluralist place like a 21st century, sort of like a, you know, a 20th, uh, uh, like a Western liberal democracy. Yes. And um, you have this sense then of uh, this slow return, which is already sort of happening in Russia, always under the surface and, and had grown up a bit in, in the Soviet Union. Um, but you move from that idea of let's head towards liberal democracy to now this very key idea of Russia as a orthodox state, Yes. But also interestingly sort of an alliance with Islam because you know Russia has a significant Muslim population which yep. is growing. Um, uh, this idea of Russia as an intact civilization that goes a long time back. Same thing with India. They Mm -hmm. want to look back beyond the idea of nation states, back thousands of years. Same in Turkey, back to the Ottomans. And so this idea that you want to look back as where this great civilization that has gone for a long time. We've got all these, these stories, we've got all these myths, we've got all this identity, and we want to grab that back as a way of trying to work out how to move into the modern world. And okay, so, gotcha. so the idea for them is like actually what we need to do is re-unit, re, re-knit together this unifying identity as a, of a civilization. So they look at the problem of isolation that individuals feel, of atomization, of alienation, mm. of the meaninglessness of modern life. And the answer to them is to give people back the hard stuff, (laughs) give them back that sense of religion or meaning um, of these bigger stories through making not just a nation state that's really like content free, let's put some content back in there. That's what people need to be modern in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, okay, so it's this like we've obviously existed in the internet world for um, decades now and there has been this kind of uh, uh, dismantling of these this kind of civilization state, or the the nature of that, so s- suddenly your the border, the end of your nation, the end of your your civilization ends with you, right? And yes, you're connecting yes. with everyone else through this network. Mm. Um, and yeah, this this uh, what? Just to go back to that, Huntington. what was the the language of that? The isolation and the
1: alienation, uh, and atomization. alienation and atomization
0: yeah, yeah. of the of the individual. Mm. Um, becomes more and more prevalent, yes. and so suddenly, with what's happening in Russia, there's mm. there's a move. Yeah, as you've said, a move towards um, re-establishing an identity that has more meaning than mm. just the self. Mm. There is a greater, mm. a greater thing that we're pushing towards.
1: And ultimately, what this what this is does is people can look at this and go, "Oh, it's just going back." And I think like mm-hmm. that's almost the Fukuyama argument, oh so yes, his argument is like there's going to be people like Putin, but really what they're doing is they're ignoring the end of history and they want to go back to history yeah but I think Huntington's argument and I've, I've sort of thought about both arguments and at different times as what's happening in the world people swing oh, between yeah, that them right. is I think there's this I think I'm increasingly seeing the truth in Huntington's argument that this is actually an inevitable second stage of of, of the modern world that the mm. modern world it's, it's bereftness of deeper meaning will for not everyone, but for many people, and I think a growing amount of people, see them fall back into filling those, you know, what we would see as, as Christians is that, that eternal, eternity in the hearts of humans, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. that restlessness, that going to Ikea, you know. So, I mean, amazing that one of the signs that um, uh, uh, Russia had sort of left The Cold War was the opening of um, McDonald's in Moscow, Mm. and there's these pictures I saw online of huge um, lines when it first opened, and it was like, wow, this amazing thing we can go to McDonald's. McDonald's has just shut up shop, and there was pictures, um, you know, wherever. Thirty years later, of McDonald's closing down and people lining up because it's going to close in a couple of days, so they're all going to get their last McDonald's meal. And there's just sort of an interesting symmetry there that the message was almost like you know McDonald's and IKEA and Starbucks will yes. make you happy, you know, and people are like, no, no, it won't. We're looking for something more.
0: And you know, you're right, Mark. McDonald's <laughs> isn't going to make us happy, even though the one reliable thing you can you can trust going across the world is that a cheeseburger is always going to taste the same. And that's something it's I true. I like to hold <laughs> a d- on to. Dream of globalization. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, as you said, we, we, if we're made in the image of God, have the desire to be part of a greater story. We are mm. part of a greater story, and that's what we believe as people who follow Jesus. And this contradicts what is happening in mm. the modern world. Um, mm. It's becoming more and more clear that this world I've been living in is is not going to be the answer to happiness mm. or, you know, f- a fulfilling life.
1: Mm. Epochs are characterised by grand stories, mm. you know, and one big story dominates. And, you know, the story we have had in the West, in the developed world, whatever you want to call it, is actually weirdly a lot of small stories. Yeah. <laughs> is that the big story is that it's all about your small story. Yeah. And we're finding the limits of that. And it's also happening at a time when the crises in the world are big. Pandemics, wars, environment, mm. all this stuff, you know, like it, it's at a moment of crisis. So we've got that, as you said, that eternity in our hearts yeah. at a crisis moment. And as has been said very often on this podcast, crisis leads to renewal. Mm. And I think that we're at, because we're at an epochal shift, we're moving into that grey zone in between space. That's a yes. moment where people hunger for change and, and that's a renewal opportunity moment. I think the devil's strategy in times of peace and prosperity of um, when everyone accepts the story is just to keep us quiet and keep us not activated mm. in our calling and just, to uh, you know, let us sort of slowly fall asleep, you know, a sort of brave new world where we're just sort of drugged and anesthetized into yes. not operating in, in what God has for us. But then there's moments, and I think that's most of us are, are used to that ministry. Not everyone, but a lot of us are used to that ministry idea that, oh hey, yeah, you know, come to church. We've got this whiz bang thing on or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, trying to catch people's attention. We're fully now, as we said, I think I said last week that this is us, We're not just entering gray zone; we're deeping gray zone. And so crises are everywhere. So that means there's opportunities for renewal. And then what the the devil does is, I think, he changes strategy. Yes. and it's not like keeping you suppressed and quiet and passive and falling asleep now it's like oh so the energy of for change is up you know yes, there's, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. hunger for renewal so actually here's this false idol of renewal let's let's actually get you over enthusiastic Let, let's let's get you sort of all riled up to go towards the wrong things mm-hmm. so I think that that's that's what we're seeing at this moment we have to change our framework of how we understand this moment to, from doing ministry from leading that. You're not going to have a problem that your people aren't excited. They're excited about too many things is where we're at.
0: So you've got kind of three, three trends that you think we're going to see mm. going forward.
1: Yeah. Well, the first one is I think we're going to see the continued rise of the civilizational state. Okay. You're going to see India continue to, to grow in the world as it economically grows. It grows in both hard and soft power. China is obviously a hugely dominant um, uh, country in the world. Um, you know, Russia is in this civilizational moment, but you're seeing that you'll see that all over the world, mm-hmm. where states are looking at the West and they're looking at what Russia and what China are doing, and so the growth of the civilizational state. The other thing that may happen here, as Russia is cut off from the network, the Western network, mm-hmm. is that what you may see is a new civilizational state network, a sort of. Uh, uh, connection. I think that's already there. You've seen this sort of alliances between countries, you know, from Iran to mm-hmm. you know Russia, China, um, and others. So I think you're going to see that continue to grow. And what we might actually see is sort of a kind of a cold war between the two. Mm. It's interesting. I think this will be the new sort of um, uh, sort of like this will replace the left right thing. I think in some ways. Okay. The second thing I think we we're seeing is mm-hmm. the return of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people throw away the, throw around the word fascism. I remember when George Bush was being described as a fascist, and you know then Trump and all of this. And there's a sense that the West is traumatized by fascism because mm-hmm. of you know uh, history after World War or during the war, the World War II. Yes, and um, so the words often used. But, you know, we sent around a little video, you know, a little sort of group chat about what we talk about on here. And it was an image, a video from, I think it was St. Petersburg of just some young adults being stopped on the street by a police officer who was fully like RoboCop, like Visor, mm-hmm. everything. And uh, they had on there, they were looking through their mobile phones to see if there's any um, dissent, you know. So, this is a, a rapid acceleration towards authoritarianism um, and also the, also what really caught my attention was on the police officer's helmet, he had uh, the Z symbol or Z depending on what English you speak. Yes. And, um, you know, which is a symbol which has taken on a life of its own and you first saw it as a descriptor for some of the Russian military hardware that was heading into Ukraine of what District they were going to operate in, but now it's become this symbol. Russia has completely jumped onto this. We saw a, mm. a gymnast wearing this uh, mm. you know, on their on their shirt and people wearing it on t-shirts. The Russian government sort of released these propaganda videos of all these young people in black t-shirts with Zed on them. And, you know, it's eerily reminiscent of the swastika. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there is a continuum where the civilizational state eventually moves into fascism. Often we can misdiagnose fascism. Been a lot of discussion, particularly since um, Black Lives Matter, really took sort of um, a forefront of of so much of the discussion in 2020 Mm. of white supremacy. Fascism and white supremacy are more like a Venn diagram. They overlap, but they're not exactly the same. Yes. Um, Really, in many ways, I think white supremacy is, is something which comes from you know, Western imperialism and particularly this sort of idea of race that comes out of European expansionism and goes into all things slavery, colonialism. I think most people are uh, okay, with most of that, it's it's fascism is something which then comes later. It comes in the 20th century. It's a reaction to modernity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't as much have an ideological core as say something like communism. It's really this sense of creating a new version of modernity, where you have this unifying sense of a civilization, clearly defined who's in, who's out, and this return to sort of breaking beyond, uh, you know, the sort of traditional boundaries, using military force, using muscular strength. You know, you're very much seeing that. There's just a little quote in Robert Paxton wrote a book called The Anatomy of Fascism. There's a good chapter there on how everyone gets fascism wrong. But he just had this little one liner which I just think has real resonance. He says, the manipulated mass enthusiasm. We see that happening in in social media. We see that happening in, in, in Russia and in the information warfare space. We've seen it happening over the last few years. The line is the manipulated mass enthusiasm and demonic energy of fascism. I'm sure, I don't know. Robert Paxton's background but when I read demonic energy I didn't just see that as a metaphor mm. um, you know I see that as a reality there's something demonic that is unleashed in these moments when you see an army raising another city, killing children, to, you know, bombing them. Um, you know, there's something, this hatred of the other that just emerges in people, which yes, yes, we can explain it sociologically. Mm. Yes. But there, there is, I think, deeper spiritual demonic strongholds being unleashed in the world and the worship of a blood of, of, of martyrs, of soldiers who go and kill themselves and land to be taken. And these, there's almost these sort of temples to be fought over, you know, mm-hmm. of these places, these lands. There's something spiritual, I think, that's been released in, in the world. And I think, you know, we have to reckon with that because... It's like a gateway drug from civilizational state. You can find yourself we've seen that with Russia moving from where it was in the nineties, you know, into I think, you know, we're seeing fascism in elements of the, the Russian leadership and and sadly even the population at this point in time. And um, you know, that's that can happen in lots of places. That's not just something that's happening in Russia, which we mm-hmm. really need to be aware of in moments like this. Yeah. And I think there's a Christian response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's fascism. Um, you know, I think it was Burley, Michael Burley spoke in his Dual uh, books, uh, sacred causes and earthly powers about the history of religion as politics, politics as religion. Rather, you know, he said that you know very quickly in the twentieth century, people could see that the rise of Bolshevism, communism, and the rise of fascism were really religious, mm. <laughs> yeah. and so that religion is returning, and it's a false religion, and we have to be unabashed in 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 critiquing it from a biblical perspective. I think the other thing that could happen in the face of the rise of fascism, you know, it's, it's traumatising, I think, particularly for people in Europe who perhaps have grown up under the sort of, let's call it the McDonald's globalisation view of the world, yes. but who knew that their town or their grandparents or their country lived through communism, fascism, the wars in Europe. Um, this is deeply traumatising because it's like the the thin veneer is pulled up and, and, and the ghosts of the past, the demons of the past are released and you know you can see that the west which has described itself as this liberal democratic bloc, the eu or the developed world or the west or whatever we want to call this what we could see happening is there now has to go well that's the civilizational states what are we and Mm. i think some of these you know the fact that you're seeing people who are on the left and the right coming together in this defense of democracy against what's happening in ukraine is that you could see the West, you know, beginning to see itself as a civilizational state. Interesting. I just want to read a quote from mm. Alexander Dugan, who's one of the sort of Russian nationalist sort of far-right Eurasianist thinkers. Um, one of his sort of off-siders in sort of a sort of far-right Eurasianist party. I won't get into Eurasianism now, but <laughs> that's, a, that's a podcast in and of itself. One of his um, sort of offside is Alexander Bovdenov, said this. Acknowledging the civilizational nature of the conflict between Russia and the West, we aim at destroying the West in its current form as a civilization. And that's really interesting. Mm. They see the West as a civilizational state. This is the this is the current sort of Russian nationalist thinking I've yes, seen. Yes. Therefore, having recourse to use the existing networks again, networked warfare. Mm-hmm. We should give priority to those that themselves are directed at the destruction of modern European civilizational identity. Again, there's a clear civilizational identity that's clear to people outside yes. of that sort of European uh, West. Groups that can act in this capacity include totalitarian sects, separatist movements, ne- neo Nazi and racist movements, anarchists and anti globalists, radical ecologists, Eurosceptics, isolationists, illegal migrants, etc. This is exactly how the West operates using against Russia liberal and human rights non governmental organizations whose ideology is destructive and pernicious for the Russian civilization. So whether the West sees itself as a civilizational state, those outside the West see it as a civilizational yes. state with very clear views, you know. And and you can see here in this, in you know, and I'm not saying this guy, this guy is a far-right thinker. I'm not advocating his thought. But you can see as we sort of dig into it that perhaps what may happen is the West begins to go, well, what do we stand for? Mm. We realize now, and you see a lot of it, like the West is weak. We've been arguing over stupid culture war issues when actually here's the real thing, you know, here's Russia bombing cities. And so therefore what you could see is a couple of things happening. You could see a sort of unifying Mm moments where the West sort of comes together and maybe some of the culture war stuff dies down, particularly in Europe as it sees like an actual genuine threat. Um, You could see a further push into culture war stuff where, well, if you don't believe these particular manifestation of progressive values, you're on the Russian side or anyone who holds to these traditional Christian values, that's what the Russians have you probably see both happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you see this west of embrace of being a civilizational state.
0: Okay, so with with all these, all these three uh, kind of trends that you're seeing, how do we not fall into the trap of them? How do we as a church, global church um, or individual local churches respond? How do we as Christians respond?
1: I think... All of these are going to be tempting. Yeah, um, we're going to see this continual rise of a civilizational state. There will be people in your congregations, perhaps because of their cultural background, who might identify with one of these civilizational states. Mm-hmm. How do we be the people of God? Mm. Um, you know, as these you know become create more friction between yes. this. You know, how do we how do we operate in a world which is perhaps split into blocks? Mm. Um, I think the return of fascism, you know, in a perhaps feeling like a different form, it's it's seductive to some people. It's like gives answers to some people. And we need to understand why people are being drawn into this, because it's not just Russians. Mm. You know, this this is global. And um, you know, I was, for example, I was reading about how amongst Malay people in Singapore, Indonesia, Um, and and Malaysia, you know, there's this far-right heavy metal scene. You know, this is all over the world. It's multicultural, this this lure. And, um, you know, I I think we need to pray against the demonic energies that have (laughs) been released into the world and um, the demonic figures is is one thing. But we also need to realise that, Um, you know, there'd be people who'd be tempted to get on that continuum from somewhere from a civilizational state and then find themselves radicalised. We've seen people during the pandemic radicalised towards that sort of far-right thought. Mm. In the same way, we could see people who rightfully are pushing back against the far-right thought radicalised into this sort of civilizational West identity where to be a Christian is to be part of a liberal democratic Western state who believes Mm -hmm. these human rights values. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean to someone in Kenya? What does that mean to someone in in Indonesia you know and and to have a sort of and fall into this place where we're not critiquing even the west and its and its faults because we're so defensive at this moment i think one of the most important things is for the church to resist the temptation to become a civilizational state
0: do you think though that like didn't Jesus ask us to be a civilizational state? Didn't he ask us to, to be a collection of people across the world who followed him yeah. and brought his kingdom to earth?
1: There's a really key nuance here.
0: Okay. God
1: works throughout history and he's calling a people. And we see the salvation history begin to be unfurled. And we see in the life of Jesus, Jesus announces the year of the Lord's favour as he begins his ministry and preaches in the synagogue and reads from Isaiah and that gathering of God's people. Mm. And what's so encouraging in the ministry of Jesus is we see the open arms that Jesus has for people who don't fall, often civilization. All cultures, there's an element of strength. Mm. The West is rearming. Russia has been building its military. China is building its military. The forces of civilizationalism, we've seen that in, in, um, um, the fascist imagery, they they rediscovered these statues from Greco-Roman times of the muscular man, the muscular woman, the, mm. the sort of warrior person. And even, to be honest, we're seeing now pictures, you know, we, saw, we were talking before, we saw a picture of, you know, happy um, – International Women's Day but this year it's you know Ukrainian mums with AKs and all this sort of stuff and there's an element I can understand that mm. but there's something different about the people of God where we're not seduced by the cult of earthly strength. Mm. Th- this is actually the, the kingdom where in God the weak are strong. And it's not a kingdom which is defined by one civilization. (laughs) Uh, We see actually in the book of Revelation, you have these different cultures of the world coming and bringing uh, their riches, but they all bring it in submission to the throne of God. Mm. The ultimate authority, all of us are part of cultures. And um, I think a civilizational state, what it does is it takes culture which I think can be good. We, we, we're part of a culture. People listening yes. listeners are part of different cultures. Yeah. Um, we're in a multicultural world. And culture is good. M- place is good. Meaning is good. To be part of a people group, you know, bigger than just your nuclear family goods. Nuclear families are good. Relationships are good. But when we elevate them to the place of worship reserved for by God, I think that's when we create a civilizational state. Mm. When what that is is people offering them a sense of meaning. And let's be really honest here. I think there are true believers at the top. But it's interesting in that quote of uh, Robert Paxton from The Anatomy of Fashion, Fascism, The Anatomy of Fashion. <laughs> Anatomy of Fascism. Slightly different book. He says the manipulated mass enthusiasm. Yeah. Often what happens here is the people, I think, it's like civilizational state is often hard drugs to people who have this crisis of modernity who are lost and mm. often it's the rich and powerful who still profit from these, these movements, you know, mm. and you look at the people. We look at the oligarchies at the top of the Russian elite, including Putin himself, who some people think is, is one of the richest people in the world. Mm. So, the king, yes, Jesus invites us into a kingdom, but a kingdom under the perfect reign and rule of God who is righteous and just. Mm. Um, And that has to be embodied. That has to be in place. But we can only hold that together when we bow our knee to Jesus and step into his multicultural global community that is the church. Civilizational structures, civilizations are actually in some ways a counterfeit to that Mm. and a post-Christian heresy of, of what the church is meant to be.
0: Well, I consider my mind changed. (laughs) Thank you so much for that today, Mark. Uh, Thank you, Daniel, for your remote uh, work. And we'll see you guys next week.